May I never lose the wonder, oh, the wonder of your mercy. May I sing your hallelujah, hallelujah, amen. Friends, turn your attention to the reading of Scripture. Allison, would you lead us from our teaching text? Today's scripture comes from 1 Timothy 6, 7, and 8. It's on page 1100. For we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. The word of the Lord. I never lose the wonder, oh, the wonder of your mercy. May I sing your hallelujah, hallelujah, amen. Tim Nelson, boys and girls, huh? Yeah. I'll tell you, um, one of the things that continues to bring me joy in my job is to continue to discover um, the kinds of ways that God has provided for our church um, in pastors and staff who really care about this place and care about the work that we do, care about this vision. And um, so on a week when we needed to figure a couple things out to have Tim be able to do music, um, it's just one of those other reminders of God's goodness to us. So, um, yeah, just feel really grateful. Uh, hello, my name is Troy. I'm glad to be one of the pastors here. I want to say that you all look amazing, well-rested. Um, so, because of that, let me give a financial update. I feel like we should come up with a jingle because we do this every month, just trying to give our church a little glimpse about how things are money-wise, and maybe a, a, like a catchy little jingle would get us excited about that. So see if we can work on that. Uh, this is just a little snapshot of where we are. Uh, every single month, we try to give you the update. The short answer or short summary of this is this past month, we fell just a little bit behind in our giving. Um, but overall, as it relates to the entire month, or our uh, uh, ministry season and years so far, we're not that far off. And I've got to say this, it's been a minute since I've been able to say that. And I'm, I'm talking years since we've been able to be at this point in a ministry year in November and to not be in some ways sounding the alarm bells. Yeah. Uh, so thank you for those of you who have regularly and faithfully been giving, and uh, I'm, I'm, I'm really glad that we're having different kinds of conversations at this point in the year than we have had in a couple of preceding years, so grateful for that. Uh, so there you go. There's some numbers. Those of you who appreciate numbers and brackets and all that kind of stuff, I hope that that's instructive and helpful for you. Um, 
Great. We're going to keep moving ahead in the series that we're in, an ancient letter to a modern church. We've been in this, t- we're at the end of it, oh, it'll be 10 weeks that we're spending concentrating on the book of 1 Timothy. And we have reached today chapter 6, the final chapter. That means we have two weeks left. I'm going to preach today. Ashley's going to preach next week to wrap the series up. After that, we're going to have a guest here to uh, particularly mark something specific around adoption and foster care this month. And then the week after that begins Advent. If that doesn't make you catch your breath and say, are we there already? We are. That's how this, this year is flying, um, but that's a little bit of a glimpse of where we're at. But today, we're going to wrap, uh, uh, this week, next week, we'll wrap up this series. If you want a little glimpse of what I'm going to do today, I'd like to provide a small little table of contents. It'll be at the bottom of the slide. For those of you who wonder how much longer do we have to endure this man's talking It gives you a little glimpse at the bottom. A sermon today in four small little chapters. Um, I hope that you have found, like our teaching team, which meets every Tuesday, I hope that you have found, like we have found, really great surprises in the book of 1 Timothy. I continually come across texts that I have read But yet now in this big sort of long run where we're building on things week after week after week, new things are showing up. Things that I didn't think we were going to talk about. There are things that are being highlighted in our teaching team and when I do my own study that I didn't think were going to actually be on this stage. And that is true about today. I had another sermon that was... I didn't think was the right one. And I didn't think we were, I was going to do this particular thing, and yet I'm going to today. Um, these have been great surprises in this text. I hope that also one of my prayers has been that we are, as a church, that we're growing, that we're growing in humility as we come before the Bible. And that we're allowing these ancient words to speak to our contemporary modern context and situation. I really loved this. I hope that it's been good for you. I'm going to also guess that if you've been journeying with us through this book, that you have seen something, learned something, maybe been surprised by something particular in this book, and it's this. Wow, that church in Ephesus was messed up. How many of you, as we've gone through this text, have thought to yourself, How dysfunctional can a church be? How broken can one church be? It's been really surprising to encounter all the things that Paul has needed to address in this one letter to one church. So many troubling and problematic issues are there in one church. Um, There are these false teachers prowling about. We keep coming back to them like every chapter. These false teachers prowling about who were teaching and propagating these alternative theories and theologies. Um, There's this neighborhood cult that's really, really big and really, really influential. And it's inspiring people to live in some really crazy ways. There are issues with honoring one another 
and respecting one another. There are conversations about what food you should eat. There are conversations about whether you should get married. There are even people in leadership positions. It looks like there might be people in leadership positions in this church that either aren't qualified or or they should really be interviewed again. There's this whole range of things happening in this early church that leave me so thankful that Ashley and I get to lead a normal church. Let me caution my own self and maybe you now that I've said that. Because it's easy, in fact, it's way too easy to stand here and to look back on this church and look back on these people and think things like, oh, how sad for them. It's really too bad they couldn't get their stuff in order. I mean, isn't it, how unfortunate that they couldn't figure out how to solve some of these problems, right? Like, I, can you believe that they couldn't see the error of their ways? Like, they, they didn't, they, they were so unaware of their short-sightedness. How is it that they didn't see their implicit biases in their judgments? How come, or maybe this, how come Paul didn't just show up and put everything in order, right? Like, why didn't Paul just come into this church, be the leader that they needed, and take care of business? It's very easy for us to stand with that kind of perspective on this kind of a church. You and I are invited to come humbly before the Bible, to always be adopting the posture of a learner, of a disciple, and to resist the very easy temptation to try to impose on these ancient people, on these ancient situations, our own contemporary perspectives and judgments. It's way too easy to do that. I'm praying that we will be humble and that we will be wise to remember that it is possible that in 1,500 years, if the fully realized rule and reign of God isn't a reality or the new creation hasn't been fully consummated, it's possible in 1,500 years, some people will look back at us and they will be perplexed and they will wonder Your church leaders did what? Your denominations taught that? You condemned that thing, but you were silent about that thing? May may we be the kinds of people that remember that being a faithful local church has always been and will always be really, really hard. And it will always be a mixed bag. And what we see today in these particular verses that I'm gonna cover, I think it just emphasizes more of that difficulty. It just helps us to see again the kind of range of issues that were present in this one early church and hopefully will remind us to humbly ask 
this ancient text, what do you have for us to learn? Um, I'm going to, in these verses, I'm going to basically have one idea that I'm going to put in front of us. And it's an idea that I hope that you and I will, with humility, in the same way that Brian invited us to repent and to confess and to investigate, that you and I will take that posture before this text and this uh, central idea. Summary of today's sermon is this. There have always been attitudes. There have always been attitudes that have led to really problematic behaviors. There have always been attitudes that have led to problematic behaviors. Um, when I was a little boy, and if it's helpful to imagine this boy bald, um, I don't mind that. That is fourth grade Troy. When I was a little boy, probably from middle of elementary school, about this age, all the way through high school, it's likely that any adult who ever spent time with me would have said these two things about Troy. First, I had a really smart mouth. Now, I understand what that means today. Chances are I knew what it meant then also, but I found it puzzling whenever someone would say I had a smart mouth because I thought having a smart anything would have been good. So I rejected the smart mouth thing. That's, that's a good thing. The second thing that would have been said about me is that I had a bad attitude. Now, I, I wasn't a really rebellious kid. I wasn't you know, setting buildings on fire. I wasn't into crime. I wasn't fighting on the playground. But I was melancholy. I had a real melancholy spirit. I was, I was a tiny little Eeyore who walked through the world saying, why bother? And it was the, kind of the way I saw the world and that would come out in ways, and it would just be, just be bad attitude. Now, I knew how I felt. What I didn't understand is why that mattered to anybody else. Because that felt very inside me. It felt like that attitude was mine, it's what I felt, it's the way that I thought, and I couldn't figure out why anybody else would care about that. Why does that matter? Poor little left side part desperately needing braces, fourth grade Troy. It took me a long time, and frankly, I'll probably have to admit, it's still taking me time to embrace and to accept the truth that your attitudes don't stay inside of you. They don't stay just locked up in here. That try as you might, try as I might, my attitudes creep out and they sneak into the ways that you and I behave. Your attitudes influence what you do and they influence what you don't do. Uh, the author and the theologian Ronald Rollheiser, he, uh, he gives the encouragement that we need to pay attention to what he calls the energies, the energies that are powering or driving your actions. He stresses that it's really important to not lose sight of, to not be ignorant of the attitudes that drive and power our behaviors. 
And I think Paul, in these couple of verses we're going to look at, Paul's doing something like that. In verses 2 through 10 of chapter 2, which we're going to run down here in a second, it's a, sec- it's a section where we circle back to one of these common themes, the theme of a false teacher, the influence and the power and the presence of false teachers. Notice how, it's how we begin in verse 3. Paul writes this, if anyone teaches otherwise and does not agree to the sound uh, instruction of our Lord Jesus Christ and to godly teaching, they are conceited and understand nothing. Okay, Paul here is laying out sort of a foundation. He's identifying an attitude of the false teachers. A defining disposition of these false teachers is being conceited. They're vain. They're overly proud of themselves, potentially narcissistic, quite probably arrogant. And then I want you to notice when Paul sort of lays out the attitude that we then have a kind of cascading movement in the next couple of verses. Once this attitude has been named, notice how like these behaviors follow the attitude. Verse 4 continues, they, the false teachers, they have an unhealthy interest in controversies and quarrels about words. Okay, stop. Paul names here a couple of specific behaviors. And I think the real defining emphasis of what Paul is doing is found in the word unhealthy. There's an out-of-balanceness to the interests of these false teachers, A few times already in 1 Timothy, Paul has talked about controversies and speculations and myths as one of the things that the false teachers are spreading. Here he's highlighting that there's an unhealthy interest in them. And then he adds on this, that there's this unhealthy interest in quarreling about words. Now, I think words really matter. And I think good conversations and good definitions about words really matter. What Paul, though, is stressing is there seems to be some sort of unhealthy fixation. Do you know some of these folks? Like a kind of contrarian spirit where you can't get a sentence out without words having to be parsed apart. Without a kind of, well, maybe not that, maybe it's that. I remember one guy, I I was going to tell a story, I'm going to stop. You know what I'm talking about. Um, It's like this interest is going off the rails. It's going into new territory because of this unhealthy interest and fixation. And then these unhealthy interests, they cascade into even more consequences. Notice what keeps happening. Verse 4 keeps going. They have an unhealthy interest in controversies and quarrels about words, and that results in envy and strife, and malicious talk, and evil suspicions, and constant friction between people of corrupt mind who have been robbed of the truth and who think that godliness is a means to a financial gain. Whoa, that is quite a list. I think it's striking how things seem to get worse and worse as we go on eventually coming to people who think you can use religion as a way to get rich. 
In a few verses, Paul's going to use language in talking about people are plunged into ruin and destruction. So we started with an attitude, conceitedness, and then we end up at ruin and destruction. How did we get there? How did things get so bad? How did you end up there? Have you ever asked that question about your own life? How how did we end up here? How did we get to this? How did that relationship come off the rails so spectacularly? Or or how did our marriage end up here? Or our neighborhood, how did it end up here? Or our finances, how did it get to here? Or our health, how did it get to here? I know it's a question I unfortunately asked way too many times in my own life. How did we get to here? There's this really great section and sentence in the book, The Sun Also Rises by Ernest Hemingway. And there's these two people in conversation, and one man gets asked by another man, so tell me, how did you end up going bankrupt? And the other man says to the man who asked the question, I went bankrupt in two ways, gradually and then suddenly. Gradually and then suddenly. And friends, that's the kind of sneaky ways that attitudes move into behaviors gradually and then suddenly. That it begins with a little bit of arrogance and then it progresses into malicious talk or into constant friction and then suddenly there's this trail of relational wreckage And you're left with the lingering question, how did we get to this? Gradually, and then suddenly. Here's my point of this whole morning. Do not underestimate the power of the attitudes that fuel your behaviors. Do not underestimate the power of the attitudes that fuel your behaviors. By the way, when we're reading these words from Paul, do they sound to you like they could be describing our contemporary political landscape? Don't they sound very familiar? unhealthy interest in controversies, quarreling and nitpicking about words, envy and strife and malicious talk, evil suspicions, constant friction between people. Doesn't that sound familiar? 
Friends, as we inch towards Tuesday's midterm elections, I want to encourage you to pay attention to this list. And if and when these behaviors are showing up for you, I challenge you to take the time to seriously interrogate the attitudes that are lurking under the surface. Is there conceit or fear or indifference or hatred? What's lurking under the surface that's powering the behaviors, the ways that you're showing up in this political moment? Don't underestimate the power of the attitudes that fuel your behaviors, and don't underestimate the power of those attitudes to affect and to impact the way you love your neighbor. Okay, in verse 6, Paul makes a little bit of a turn. And these are the verses that we heard read today. I purposely put verses in front of us that are not the point of today. But these verses, they give us, they offer up, I think, a bit of a contrasting attitude to the conceit that we began with. Paul talks about contentment. Uh, The verses that we just heard, they go like this. But godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. And so Paul's offering up a different attitude. Dealt with conceit, we're now dealing with a kind of contentment. But then what's interesting is rhetorically, Paul doesn't linger here. He tries to drive the, home, the point home about contentment by talking about something that isn't contentment. That he contrasts contentment with a love of money. Those who want to get rich, a desire for even more, a kind of dissatisfaction. And he keeps writing, those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money, they have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. I'm guessing that many of you have heard a couple of those words talked about in isolation, without larger context. It's helpful to situate all of these things together. They're all part of a rhetorical argument. These final verses, they're words that make many Westerners squirm in their seats. And we're looking for a way to kind of dismiss what Paul said. Well, Paul's just being dramatic. But I think if we read this consistently and we, rec- consistently and we recognize the power and the potential consequences of attitudes, then I think we have to name that Paul isn't being dramatic here. That he's following the possible pathways of the energies that fuel our behaviors. Wanting more. Loving money. 
This is what he's talking about. Wealth is not the problem. The attitude with which we approach the money is the problem. And it's not even a a conversation about wealth. This is rich and poor. It's a love for money. It's a dissatisfaction. It's a wanting more. It's an attitude that Paul is claiming leads to really bad places. And let's be honest, that's not hard to imagine, right? This isn't hard to believe, right? Temptations and traps and foolish Harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction, potential of leaving the faith altogether, being pierced by many griefs. That's not hard to imagine as a potential consequence of being obsessed with or having this incessant desire for more wealth. Do not underestimate the power of the attitudes that fuel your behaviors. You know, as, as, as I've sat with these closing verses, I, I feel like I keep picking up on sheep imagery. The end of the, the summer series, we were doing Psalm 23, and I guess that continues to stick with me, this image of a good shepherd and of being guided appropriately. And I find myself coming back to these verses, and I, I, I'm just picking up this imagery of traps and falling into things and wandering away and being pierced. I can't but wonder if Paul may be giving the subtle picture here of being led by, of being shepherded by a kind of attitude, by a kind of dissatisfaction, by a kind of wanting more, a kind of desire for money, a, a way of being led by an attitude that puts somebody in positions that the good shepherd would never do leading to places the good shepherd would never guide and direct. It's an attitude that that leads into harmful places, into traps, into brambles, into sticky positions and situations where the person is pierced with many griefs, possibly even they find themselves wandered away, separated entirely from the flock, potentially forever. And all that imagery, it prompts me to ask the question, what attitudes are leading me? Not fourth grade Troy, right now, what attitudes are leading me? What's guiding me? What attitudes primarily power my behaviors? What have I allowed to direct my path? What is shepherding my life? Do I experience the great gain of godliness and contentment paired together? Or am I much more familiar with a spirit of conceit and dissatisfaction? What's leading my life? What attitudes are primarily powering my behaviors? So many times in the New Testament letters, the picture that is painted of the Christian community is really bleak, and it's really complicated. I mean, these were churches made up of people with really different opinions and motives and practices and influences. It must have been really hard. 
It must have been really hard to lead a church of really diverse people in an up-and-coming city in a really potential charged political environment. That must have been really hard. And yet, I am so moved because Paul's solution in all of these letters, specifically in 1 Timothy, but all of these letters, Paul's solution is not to like piece out the gatherings based on affinities or based on shared practices or based on agreed theological statements. Paul's impulse was not to say, okay, all of you who have struggled with false teaching, I want you to meet at, at Octavius's mansion. And those of you who have struggled to respect, I want you to go over to Marcus's villa. And those, Paul's impulse was not to make things simpler by separating Paul didn't have the impulse to say, this will make things easier if we separate into other groups. That Paul's incessant admonition, Paul's incessant encouragement, Paul's incessant charge was, hey, learn to get along. Learn to celebrate and embrace the diversity that is among you and learn to live in this uniqueness of the newness of life in Christ. Paul's solution is never to separate in the interest of simplicity. This other letter, the book of Ephesians, it's the same church. Paul emphasizes, I love these verses. He says, there is one body and one spirit. Just as you were called to one hope when you were called, there's one Lord, one faith, one baptism. One God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. What's the theme of that? One. Oneness, wholeness, unity. Paul is incessantly calling for this. He says later on, even in the midst of this messed up church, Paul is hopeful that we will in all things, read this, we will in all things grow up into him who is the head. The hopefulness of this, we will in all things grow up into him who is the head, that is Christ. For him, from him the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. That is a hopeful vision. I can hardly believe it. Paul can have this confidence because the head of this body, Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ himself was powered by attitudes that resulted in life-giving behaviors. And you and I, individually and as a church, we are called to adopt that same attitude, that you and I are called to imitate him and to also be powered and fueled by attitudes that will result in selfless, life-giving behaviors for the life of the world. We revisit these words from Philippians 2 all the time around here, and we do that without apology. 
because in Philippians 2, we are reminded that we are to have the same attitude as Christ Jesus. The same attitude. Jesus, who had every right to claim what was rightfully his, equality with God, and refused. Jesus, who instead took on the very nature of a servant, didn't use his right to his own advantage, took on the nature of a servant, became obedient to death, a life-giving death. And this attitude of Jesus, that's the attitude that led Paul to be hopeful and to believe in this loving and sacrificial way of Jesus, that through that way, through that attitude, by embodying and adopting that attitude, that even the messed up people in the church of Ephesians, that even the messed up people in the church at Mars Hill, that even those messed up people, that they would one day attain the full measure the whole measure of fullness in Christ. The whole measure of fullness in Christ is a potential. Thanks be to God. And that fullness of Christ is something that we get a taste of every single week when we accept the invitation to come and eat at these tables. Let's taste that full measure together. The Lord be with you. Lift up your hearts. And let us give thanks to the Lord our God. So in a spirit of thanksgiving, I invite you to pray with me how right and what a good and joyful thing it is at all times and in all places to give thanks to you, God Almighty, the creator of heaven and earth. And so we praise you and we join our voices with angels and archangels with the entire company of heaven who forever surround the throne and they sing to bring glory to your name. Holy, holy, holy Lord, God of power and might, Heaven and earth are full of your glory. Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And so, Holy Spirit, we ask for a mysterious and powerful work that we cannot conjure up on our own. Would you do among us what only you can do? At the same time as you convict and illuminate attitudes that we need to repent of, that need to be changed, would you also fill us with hopefulness that we are being made more and more one together as a church and that we are being built up to one day attain the whole measure of the fullness of Jesus Christ. And so would you feed us now, give us the taste of that now. May we be sustained and nourished and strengthened as we go. And amen. Paul tells the story of Jesus on the night he was betrayed. He, he took bread with his disciples. And the bread was broken as an image, as a picture 
of the attitude of Jesus who voluntarily and willingly gave up his own body for the life of the world. And we're invited to take it and to eat it. And in a similar way, he took the cup and he blessed it. And he said, there's a new promise given to people now. It's a promise made real in my blood. So take it and drink it. And whenever we eat and we drink this meal, we tell the story again of God's unbelievable love for all people made real in the life and death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus. A story that we try to tell, joining generations of people who have sought to try to summarize this great story with these simple phrases that we speak now together. Christ has died, Christ is risen, and Christ will come again. So I invite you to come and take and eat. There are four spots around the room. There are moment, uh, places for you to pray. You can write prayers and put them in the wall. You can light a candle if it's a symbol of prayer. You can, there are people who are willing to pray for you and with you. And I invite you to sing. Sing of this great love and to be encouraged and reminded of the unity that Jesus prayed for in the garden that we realize in small little steps when we come together. So friends, in these next couple of minutes, take and eat, taste and see that the Lord is good. Receive who you are, the body of Christ.